Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hello, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Skylit. This is the Skylight Books podcast series. I'm your host, Maddie Gobo, the events manager here at Skylight Books in Los Angeles. We're open every day these days. We're in-store shopping with a mask from 11 to 7 on weekdays and 10 to 8 on weekends. We also offer curbside pickup those same hours and online ordering on our website, skylightbooks.com. All right, so let's get to our conversation today. We're going to be discussing literatures of the Anthropocene with two authors, Sudeep Sen and Kiran Bhatt. And we're delighted that they're joining us here today. So let me introduce them. Sudeep Sen is widely recognized as a major new generation voice in world literature and one of the finest English language poets in the international literary scene. His prize-winning books include Postmarked India, New and Selected Poems, Distracted Geographies, Rain, Aria, The HarperCollins Book of English Poetry, Fractals, New and Selected Poems, Erotext, and Kaifi Azmi Poems. Blue Nude and the Whispering Anklets are forthcoming. He is the editorial director of Arc Arts and the editor of Atlas. Sen is the first Asian honored to read his poetry and deliver the Derek Walcott Lecture at the Nobel Laureate Festival. The Government of India's Ministry of Culture has awarded him the Senior Fellowship for Outstanding Persons in the Field of Culture and Literature. Kiran Bhatt is a global citizen formed in a suburb of Atlanta, Georgia, to parents from southern Karnataka in India. He has currently traveled to over 130 countries, lived in 18 different places, and speaks 12 languages. He is primarily known as the author of We the Forsaken World, but he has authored books in four foreign languages and has had his writing published in the Kenyon Review, the Brooklyn Rail, the Colorado Review, Eclectica, 3AM Magazine, the Radical Art Review, the Chakar Mascara Literary Review, and several other places. His list of homes is vast, but his heart and spirit always remain in Mumbai somehow. He currently lives in Melbourne. You can find him at Weltgeist Kiran. Welcome to the podcast, gentlemen. I'm happy to have you. Thank you for being here. It's been great to talk to you, Sadeep, over the last few weeks, a uh, few months. It's hard to tell now since COVID makes everything a blur, but um, I'm really interested in these poems, which I think tell us a lot about life in, you know, a kind of a 
climate conscious world. Could you, could you first start off by telling us what the word Anthropocene means? What is the Anthropocene? Well, you know, according to the dictionary meaning, I mean, it is obviously the, the, the age of great acceleration, the, 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 the accelerated uh, time of um, the way the world has changed due to climate change, man-made climate change, particularly. I mean, the human species has been around for what, 200,000 years? Yeah. And the planet's age is about uh, 4.5 billion years. And in, in, in 200,000 years, and especially the last, I don't know, maybe 50, 50, 100 years, we've done such a great job in destroying the planet. <laughs> so that's really what it's all about, you know. Um, so that's what is, you know, well, Anthropocene is just a, uh, in a geographical term for it, yes. So, so why did you choose to title a book Anthropocene? Yeah, I think it's a very attractive word, you know, which encompasses everything. Yeah. And why not? It's a one word title, which sort of, you know, really maps everything. But the subtitle, of course, is climate change, contagion and consolation. So I talk about the climate change aspect of it in the book. And then um, contagion is, of course, the pandemic. And a pandemic, I just feel, is one part of the effects of climate change. There are so many others which, which will happen eventually. And consolation, because I wanted uh, the human element of the book, human element of our side, where, you know, how we are dealing with things. And I wanted to end the book, at least, with a sense of hope. Otherwise, you know, without hope, it's all too dark and grim, really. Yeah. So that's how it's sort of structured in three parts, broadly speaking. Yes, I mean, as someone who happened to read an early copy of the book, I can tell for people who will read it a little later, it's really riveting book. I think that the poems on climate change are extremely emotional and heart-wrenching and you really feel um, the state of the world through your poems. And it's also interesting, you know, this idea of suffocation that's such a prominent part and kind of a theme that runs across all the poems in a certain way. Is there a particular reason why you relate to that theme more compared to, say, other aspects of climate change or other aspects of the COVID pandemic? Oh, good question. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. And I'm glad you like it. And in fact, you're, 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 you're the only one, I think, who's, who's read the manuscript, apart from my partner. Oh, wow. Amazing. Yes. <laughs> That's special. <laughs> as, as, as a whole book, yes. I mean, you know, bits and pieces have, of course, been published here and there. So people have read many of the Thank pieces. you. I'm honored that you trust yeah, me. It's, people. It's one of those wonderful accidents, like like this accident. I mean, look at you. You're in Australia. I'm sitting in India, and here we're doing a thing for America, Los well, Angeles. Yeah. It's just perfect. You know, it's all these things are organic and you know wonderful. But uh, suffocation is an interesting word because um, I realize more and more. I mean, here we are. You know, the word, the the word, the two words, breathing and breath. Um, are just so important in the cycle of living, of course, because without air, we can't breathe. And then the, the entire dynamics about George Floyd, I can't breathe, racism, bad air, pollution. So the breathing as a metaphor has become so much more uh, urgent than ever before. And of course, the Delhi pollution doesn't help, you know, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm asthmatic. I have breathing trouble anyway. And then I realized how precious air is. And of course, that's a very banal thing to say, but you know, uh, you know, I've had sporting accidents before and you know, you, you know, you're in great pain. I think, God, oh, that's really bad. But man, when you can't breathe properly, 
you feel, gosh, this is the end. And and here we are again about mask and unmasking and you know nebulizing and you know cleaning and spraying and sanitizing. So it's all about that in some sense. You know, it's all strangely come together. And and let's put it this way, you know, we are now formally wearing masks, but in, in all our social interactions, most people wear a mask. And it's only with very few people you unmask. So there's that too, you know, where you suffocate and where you choose not to suffocate and breathe and not breathe. That's also a very interesting element to the book that I never even thought about. Was there an attempt that you wanted to unmask yourself in some way in these poems? Or like as no, a, no, 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 not, consciously, not, consciously, not at all. Yeah. No, no, no. Yeah. As, as artists, you know, we are constantly, you know, using different tropes and so on and so on. So yeah. there was not a conscious way of not, I mean, I don't hide behind anything. You know, I write with a sense of honesty and integrity, hopefully. And uh, You know, it's interesting that you reflect a little bit on the end of time to the ecological scales of things. I think in my novel, We of the Forsaken World, I also wanted to reflect not necessarily on the end of times, but on this type of ravaging that's happening all across the world that happens in certain corners for a planet but is usually ignored in a lot of topographies or like narratives of topography we usually forget about these isolated tribes that are being destroyed by logging or these middle of nowhere parts of the world that get destroyed by industrial spills or lost to corporate greed or kind of like overrun by conservatism and fundamentalisms and um of course, some of us live in those corners, so we think of it more, but the greater global narrative tends to forget about them and people who live in like very lush, romanticized countries in the West usually are not even thinking about those problems unless they actively travel. So I wanted to kind of also not necessarily reflect on the Anthropocene, but reflect a little bit more on that kind of relation that we have to man and each other and also do so in a way that this digital world which allows people who are not even physically connected to themselves to kind of like allow them to communicate and collaborate in ways that we had never even witnessed before this digital age and so I wanted to write a book also that kind of allowed to create those cross uh, cultural communications that I don't think are happening enough in the real world so I, I said yeah tell me, yeah, tell me. No, I I, I also love the way you've titled the book, We of the Forsaken World, of course, is a wonderful title. But A, when you look at it typographically, it's all in lowercase, it's in, it's in italics. And then you have the three dots, the ellipse, and a question mark. Now, that's kind of a complicated title for a novel. Tell me more about it, because it's clearly very conscious. Oh, well, thank you, thank you. Well, first of all, the question mark might be incidental in something you've read. There's just three ellipses, but yeah, that, everything else is on point. So the we of the forsaken world is all lowercase because it's supposed to represent. So in we of the forsaken world, I told the stories of four isolated regions that could be anywhere in the world, and I decided to create... 16 different narratives that are just supposed to be also random citizens of these four very different places. And um, it was interesting to want to tell a story that actually was supposed to be hundreds of narratives, 64 different people in one of the best drafts. And I want to create the sense of a multitude speaking out and blowing together and trying to tell this greater collective tale of being kind of forgotten on the global landscape of narrative. And with this we, it's this we, like 
I'm a voice, this other person's a voice, this other person's a voice, and we're all coming together to tell this tale together, the lower cases to indicate that commonality, that collectiveness, and also probably that we are lower in a certain way, but also not really. And then the ellipses is, and this is how our narrative continues. So this is like the start, we of the forsaken world, and then the first person narratives begin, and that is that narrative of the we. So yes, it's very constant. And why do you want to tilt yourself as an italics? Italics is just... <laughs> That's interesting. So that I think is, yeah, I didn't think about that. That's just how we use in English. We just italicize titles. So that is less conscious. Okay, okay. okay. That one because I read, I, I read as a poet, you're so, one is so careful with language that I thought. Yeah, yeah, you, that that one was just, just like we would uh, italicize Anthropocene. That is just the uh, italicis of uh, English okay. grammar, not <laughs> nothing else. All right, okay. Well, I clearly read too much into it. But I'm very surprised that your modesty, you just did what, 64? Uh, what did you say, 64? 60, ultimately, it became 16 characters that made it to the book. But it, the best draft, it, it went from like a few hundred to 64 to 32 to oh, 16. So it kept because I was hoping that it should be 108, considering in your bio, you said you've been to, you've lived in 108 places. So Correct. that would have been an interesting. And it also sort of ties up with the sort of Hindu uh, sutra, isn't it? The, those uh, prayer beads. So there, how many beads are there? That's an analysis. I never thought about sutras at all. So that's an interesting. Mm -hmm. I do think a lot about concepts of Atman, like in the sense of like, I do think a lot about in the spiritual way, how we're all just kind of pieces of string or connection to other spirits or other beings. And we're all part of this greater cosmic conversation that we kind of pass in and out in through our lives and also through you know, interactions with others. So that's something also that really heavily inspires my work, but not necessarily sutras, that's interesting. But um, <laughs> yes, so. And tell me more about Girard. Well, I'm also, yeah, I'm also working on a giant novel set all over the world that will be taking place in 365 different places in the world, 365 for one year. And I wanted to tell the story of a mother and a father, an archetypal mother or father that could be anywhere like um that really um you know um you know an extremely conservative mother and then this kind of um you know this practical hard-working father just people who could be anywhere and the, dealing with the difference it is an lgbt very different son and um trying to mitigate this difference from the archetypal story level, like how learning over decades to accept that difference. And I want to channel that through all these different cultural corners of the world. So each inst uh, installation of this greater constellation of pieces is going to eventually over a decade tell the story of that slow burn to acceptance, but each part of that story is taking place in another corner of the world, from Sydney to Santiago in Chile to Delhi to even like smaller villages in the middle of like the Falkland Islands or in the middle of Vanuatu or Turkmenistan. I wanted to literally turn, Hirar means to turn in Spanish, so I wanted to turn around the world as it turns around my parents as well. So it's also going to be a digital piece as much as it is a novel because I want to stream it through a virtual platform and so that people get stories as they're happening in real time. So if the, a story is being told in December 23rd, 2023, that's when the story would be taking place and you will get it digitally. And then, so you're, you're like there at the same time that I'm imagining mother and father in a certain way. That's a goal at least. Wonderful. Look forward to it. 
I look forward to your, I think Anthropocene is also quite ambitious. I mean, it's a poetry collection, so it cannot be nearly, I mean, of course, but even poetry collections can be huge as well. So, you know, maybe you'll also someday write even a bigger book than Fractals or Anthropocene or all these other no, never, books. Never, never, never. I will never get into fiction. I think poetry is much, much bigger in scope and, you know, yeah. even though things are dystopic, the macro element of, of poetry is, uh, is you know, far-reaching. Yeah. And, and short speeches actually travel a uh, lot more. I'm not close to writing a, fic, a book of fiction, of course, but you know, whenever I write uh, short fiction, I realize why am I wasting so many words? I can actually say uh -huh. it so tightly in a smaller space. Uh, and and I have to say this, you know, most of my friends are novelists, and when I when I'm socializing with them and meet their agents, they all think that you know I have this great big fat novel, Indian novel. And I have to tell them that, yes, I have a few more poetry collections you can look at, but there is no novel. Because one of the things I feel is I know I can write two novels fairly well. One would be sort of a fictionalized version of my life. The second novel would be all the things I left out in the first book would get into the second book with some more fictionalized version of my life. Do I really have a third book in terms of a good book of fiction? I don't see that there is one, you know. So... What's the point writing two really good, successful books when you don't have a third book as a novelist? That's my personal take, of course. Whereas with poetry, I, you know, it's a ceaseless pit, you know, because with every book I feel I'm learning something, I'm challenging myself, I'm doing something new. And Anthropocene in that sense is a sort of, set, you know, another, another step towards that. No, and I totally feel that like when I read your poetry, not just in Anthropocene, but also in Fractals, you're, you're actually, I think, definitely one of the best poets working right now, either from India or anywhere, because your ability to condense so much meaning and thought into a, a set of some lines is really staggering for me. Like there were so many, when I read Anthropocene, there were so many of them that I really want to analyze and dissect and really get into, but, you know, space is limited when one wants to write critically, no, but, but still. But in a short essay, I mean, work and see that's the thing i mean you know you wrote that lovely essay and you had a you had a word constraint and in a sense it was poetry because you got a lot in within that space and of course you know you verbally told me that you, know, you really wanted to analyze and it's frustrating because there's a lot in each piece I know. But, you know there you are because you know that, that that's the thing i mean if the writing is working for each other in that sense i mean you know your your work and my work for you that's that's ultimately what we want to do isn't it the the, the, the writing itself should speak to the reader. Yeah. And if it's doing so with uh, gravitas, with meaning, with lyricism, and, and some emotionality, I think, you know, you know, one is on the right track. Yes, and I think what's also interesting in both of our works is not just that we, I mean, at least I don't want to speak for myself, but definitely you write with that gravitas and meaning. I mean, I think that the other thing is that we're writing about things that are topical and deserve greater global critical attention because we want to write about, like, I, I think that we are talking about something that does affect people on a global scale. Like, do you feel like there are a lot of authors or contemporaries who are interested in anthropological, uh, anthropocenic literature? Like, are there other writers you think that are in this conversation as well? Uh, so in the last seven, eight months, I think by virtue of what we are going through, the kind of world we are living in, people as writers are responding to the, the, this topic, yes. Prior to that, I'm not very sure. Prior to that, it would have been sort of oblique. You know, people wrote on these topics, you know, not in a kind of a focused manner. 
but um, now, yes, I mean, because it's 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 very much, you know, the topic of our times. It is, and it's it is um, it's something that um, I think a lot of us have to think about because we witness ecological degradation right in front of us. I mean, there was that uh, wonderful uh, poem written by that person from the Solomon Islands. She, she recited it in front of the UN, I think in 2014 or 2013, just talking about how the Marshall's Islands were disintegrating right in front of her. And, you know, Vinita Agrawal, who's also, um, I think, a Mumbai-based poet, she, and she created this wonderful anthology called Open Your Eyes, which you're also a part of, in which people all over the world, but largely out of India, were talking about climate change and how it was affecting things in front of them, as well as ecological degradation. So I think that there's definitely... Uh, there's another very, very good anthology that's come out from Penguin uh, Random House. Um, I don't know whether you've seen it. It's called um, uh, Singing in the Dark. I've not uh, heard of it. Oh, yes, I have seen this. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. I, I, Someone else I know is in, in that. I don't remember who right now, but I have to. We've got work. This is actually really a global okay. anthology on poetry under lockdown. Um, yeah. India. Yeah, yeah. So there's, yeah, there's a lot that's happening. Um, uh, you know, people are talking about it. I mean, the, the thing is, of course, whether people in the future in a sustained way will continue engaging in this topic. Only then we will know whether there's a sort of movement or interest. Right now, it's very much a topical thing. Just like, you know, if there's floods or if there's a political situation, people write about it. So it's too early to say, but hopefully, I think because it's such an urgent issue, I mean, you know, climate change is staring at us and people are still not taking it seriously. I mean, look at the last administration in the US. I mean, you know, you know, the, 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 the man on top, you know, denied that there's something called <laughs> Oh, it's ridiculous. Thank God that man on top is changing. <laughs> but that's another topic for another story. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, he's, he's going to hang on to Jan 20th. You know, he's not going to leave the White House that easily. Yeah. Uh, but that's, that's, a, that's a separate issue. But people have written, Amitabh Ghosh has written a wonderful book on uh, climate change, the great derangement. Many, many social scientists are, you know, are writing. So, so yes, there's a growing literature. And there's this whole, whole... Uh, uh, subgenre, what is called eco literature, you know. Yes. Can you explain what is eco literature, just for the people who might not know much about it? Well, you know, I'm not an academic. You know, I'm, I, you know, I, I leave it to the sort of the greats and the goods in the in the academia to sort of you know make these fancy terms. But I suspect what they mean is literature which deals with ecology or the ecosystem, and so therefore geography and the climate and so on, very yeah. broadly speaking. And, and but I, I also, yeah. I also feel um, it. It is probably, and as a, this is how I think as a poet, uh, that it sort of extends uh, in a micro way too inwardly. What about the geography and the terrain and the climate change within our body? Mm. That's being and that's something interesting. The outside. Uh, so um, so <laughs> I would hope that that is also part of eco-literature at some point. Yeah, can you explain that more, like what it means to write eco-literatures of the bodies that are visceral and physical, not just ecological? Can you explain that more? What, what is our body? Our body is an interface between the outside and the inside world. Yeah. The outside world is what we are talking about, ecology, so, so to speak. So the air, the, the water, the rains, the floods and everything is in the outside world. But we need all that to survive. So we are breathing it in. Again, breath. You know, we are breathing all that in. 
And that bread, if it is polluted or if it is you know, contaminated, affects the inner breath structure and inner part of our body, uh, functioning of our body. Similarly, what, with what we ingest, so the kinds of food we are eating, whether it's you know, uh, modified food or you know, uh, artificial food, or whether it's sort of organic food, that's why our health has changed so much and body shapes have changed so much because so much of it is modified processed food in, in daily life if you're not very careful. So yes, it's the inside and the outside, the ecology inside and the outside, you know, it's always very linked. Um, I remember when I was very, very young, um, I used to watch this um, wonderful series by this American scientist, I wouldn't say pop scientist, I mean a scientist called Carl Sagan. But he did these fantastic series, just like Richard Attenborough did these wildlife series. So, so his area of interest was the cosmos. So I was completely fascinated. You know, I mean, I'm in school, uh, you know, uh, not even high school. So it's a time when you're sort of interested in spacecraft and rocket and the universe and the solar system. And I used to watch all the all the all the series. At that time, you know, we didn't even have a TV in our house, so I had to go to the American Center Library. And since this is a program for America, they might be interested. So the American Center Library in Delhi and the British Council Libraries uh, were two really good libraries when I was growing up in Delhi. And they were the only two, once you have membership, which was very cheap, if you're if you if you're a student, it was very cheap. The two places in Delhi which were air-conditioned. So we would go and hang there because it's just so hot and most places didn't have air conditioning. So you know, part of being in those libraries was that. But also they used to screen fantastic documentaries and you know, art films and so on. So in the British Council, for instance, I saw most of the Shakespeare plays which were on, on, on film. So this series was being screened at, uh, at the American Center and I would go there, I would be like one of, you know, there were three people in the entire auditorium and you know, I was so obsessed with the series. But two of them, what he did was he went from the cosmos and then mapped it inversely and took the spacecraft, the notional spacecraft inside the body. And then he was swimming through the bloodstream, the corpuscles, so the complete inside of the body became fascinating on screen. So it was amazing. So that's, that was another good example of what the inside and outside are. And I mean, what is it ultimately, ultimately, you know, the, our overall um, uh, life patterns and models, scientific models are very similar. It's all to do with an atom, with the proton, neutron, and electron. Whether it's this little cell in our body which makes up our body system, or is a solar system, we are operating on the same principle. And we're operating in a certain oneness. I mean, that's also something that interests me a lot. I mean, that, that idea of going from atom to molecule to all the different things in our bodies, to this body, to this you know, to this town, to the city, to this nation, to this earth. I mean, I'm not going to the universe, although I'm, I, would, I also am interested in the universe in certain ways, but I do find it interesting how we can stagger all these little parts, all these little atoms of ourselves onto this interface that is the world, planet earth, and to kind of map out the topographies of a selfhood onto a kind of a global interface. So, I mean, yeah, it's interesting for sure. And I, I think that also this idea of, eco-literature, this idea of, I mean, 
it need not always be necessarily directly derivative of climate change or response to like ecological problems. It's also an awareness of ecology, an awareness of our limited space in this earth and the fact that we're part of a greater connection and interface. So I, Indeed. I relate Indeed. to yeah. that. You're absolutely right. Yes, yes. And you know, b before climate change became trendy and topical, eco-literature eco still existed, you see. So like many other things. Uh, yeah. So it's very much part of a larger space, I think, yeah. And many of these, many of these subgenres, of course, overlap. You know, we're talking about body, body politics, eco-literature. Globalization um, as well. Globalization, globalization, yes, of course, yeah. How, how do you feel that globalization plays into this kind of new interest in eco-fiction or eco-literature or literatures of the Anthropocene? Well, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a very logical extension, isn't it? I mean, because of globalization, we are facing so many problems. Otherwise, oh, well, we have so many problems. Uh, we finally realize that they affect us all, not just one little town, yes, you know. city. Well, globalization was not meant for the entire globe. That's the irony. I know. You know the, other thing. <laughs> the British people and, and this Western world think of globalization as, you know, a global phenomenon. We never thought of this as a globalized phenomenon was purely because it helped their trade mm -hmm. systems. Mm -hmm. Why do you think they produce things in India and ship it back? Because paper is cheap. Yeah. They're not doing us any, any service. You know, similarly, you know, uh, America is not interested in immigrants. Only if the immigrant is useful to America, <laughs> then they'll let them in. So Silicon yeah. Valley and the doctors, you know, they're just, you know, so there's a yeah, even like a hard preferential way of immigration there. So let's not forget globalization is completely rooted to money and the stock market and so I should so be more precise. Otherwise, otherwise, you know, all around the world, we had these microsystems uh, happily coexisting. Mm. It was so Rather than globalization, there's also this narrative of like, planetary coexistence, maybe that's a better word to say, to be aware of all these other cultures living in the systemic spaces. And then that there's kind of this shared, there's not necessarily um, a universality, but maybe a shared kind of humanity and a shared kind of, uh, sort of things. Yeah, no, I would, I would like to believe in what you're saying. And, you know, we probably partly also come from the same ethos, being Indians at one level. We, of course, Indian-American. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I understand where you're coming from. Yeah, yeah. Another, another to it. And, you know, I've lived in America and England for yeah, yeah. many, many years to know what that side is. Yeah. But, you know, I want to remind you that um, uh, this whole notion of coexistence is... I don't know how, 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 how serious people are <laughs> and planetary coexistence. Again, why do you think people want to conquer the other planets? Because resources here are getting uh, more and more difficult. So the superpowers then go and find out, yeah. you know, they want to stake claim in the planets outside. You know, that's, that's really what is happening. So it's a larger malaise of what has happened in the past. And, you know, it's part of history, part of yeah. the way things work. So maybe the solution then, what, what are you arguing then is the solution in this context to not act, to not try to connect or to not try? I mean, we're talking about several different things as well. I mean, you're very much talking about economic globalization, which is kind of the, you know, kind of the side consequence of colonialism and a lot of other like different trade aspects. And yes, like space, space colonialization is also going to become a form of that. But there's also so just like interconnectivity and just like learning more about 
sharing through the internet through kind of shared human consequence as well like this kind of earth we live on and so i i'm more thinking about it from that perspective not from the economic one whereas i think you're thinking of it more from that like that yeah so i was talking about the economic side first but really it's also part of that yeah yeah, yeah, it is also part of that. But when you ask me what the solution is, I mean, I, I as an individual have certain suggestions, I don't have solutions. But fortunately, at least we inhabit a space where we can make a difference in a different kind of way. We inhabit the artistic space. Mm. You know, we are writers, you know, there are colleagues of mine who are photographers, musicians. These are the people who are dri- will be driving the change because it's the soft power, the soft signals through creativity and um, slow reading that people will start sort of again I think hopefully start reimagining things I mean the the pandemic and the lockdown has, has slowed people down and people actually are grateful about the fact that they actually speak to more people albeit virtually right now they have more time to read they have more time to reflect we were just hurtling on and on and on and on so you know it, it it's like a reset button it's to say check check again so you know so uh, I think the artistic community has a lot of uh, a big role to play. Yeah, and I think that that's something that I also deeply believe in is that power of imagining that if you are not necessarily happy with the narratives that are coming forward, then why not take advantage of being an artist to use your imagination and create other narratives and other options for a narrative. And in the space that I work in is that realm of kind of global thinking kind of living in a more collective environment and a conscientious one of all the different cultures and mindsets of this planet but I mean even and that's a part of ecological this kind of ecological protest that we have to shape as well is to start to now try to reharmonize people towards realizing that there are all these other parts of the world and they also deserve your attention and your understanding so mm-hmm. all we can do is hope to create and to create well enough that people pay attention to it. <laughs> of course, of course. Well, I mean, let's 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 hope the darkness is lifted. Yes, but you know, I I am a I'm I I I am I'm, I always look at things positively. You know, I mean, look at it. You know, every morning the sun comes out. The sun doesn't complain. It's yeah. a beautiful thing. Yeah. You know, the larger forces in life continue. Yeah. It's just, we as humans are so angst-ridden. Yeah. So just look, look at the birds and the leaves outside and you know, you start, you'll you know, there'll be yeah. a smile on your face. I and also believe that, yeah. I agree with you. I think we just have to learn to, ironically, we say we imagine, but that also means we have to kind of maybe start putting ourselves in that third perspective of another creature. But, but you know, you know Kiran, the other thing is, you know, I think you're coming more from a, pers- a perspective of a Western society because yeah, that's yeah. where you largely inhabit. Yeah. I'm, I'm coming from India where both the yeah. Indianness and the Western society coexist. Yeah, so I'm not very far removed from, I would say, the soil in some yeah. sense. Well, you know, it's much but 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 even that I think is not about Western or Indian like or anything. I mean, there are people who live in Kansas or live in the middle of Australia and they work on the soil every single day, and they would also have that closeness. So I think that true, true. But you know, look, then you're talking about the number of people. I mean, the number of people say in in certain parts of the world, Africa, Asia, and so on. Yeah. You know, just the number of people clustered together at a very basic level of the soil level is much higher and the hardships are higher. I mean, yes, that's also another thing. I mean, in a prairie farm, you know, with a huge machine, the man is, of course, working in the soil, but he and three other people are working, you know. 
and they have high broadband internet there. You know, that it, it's not like this. But it like depends on the, again, that depends on the society. And I, I don't think you can generalize either. I mean, there are certain societies where, I mean, but, but that would also, again, depend on, I mean, people like us who live in urban environments are not working the soil, uh, doing anything more than any other individual. So Absolutely, yeah. it Absolutely, comes to yeah. the element of acumen and just that desire to connect and try to kind of perceive things. But yeah. Yeah. Well, Sudeep, we're now at the end of our time. I want to thank you so much for doing this. I'm really grateful that I've gotten a chance to talk to a poet as illustrious as yourself. And I've learned a lot reading your poetry and I look forward to continuing this literary dialogue outside of Skylight Books. Now, we have a little bit of extra time and I'm sure that after all this talking, a lot of these curious readers are interested in what we say as writers. So would you have maybe a poem or two to share? We'd love to hear them. So this is, uh, this is a poem called Disembodied, which of course I read, I think, last time. Or yeah. maybe I didn't read this one. But uh, so this is directly to do with uh, Anthropocene, climate change. Yes. But very much, from, very much from the point of view of my city, Delhi. This is where yeah. it's based. Disembodied. My body carved from abandoned bricks of a ruined temple, from minaret shards of an old mosque, from slate remnants of a medieval church apse, from soil tilled by my ancestors. My bones don't fit together correctly as they should, the searing ultraviolet light from Aurora Borealis patches and etch corrects my orientation. Magnetic pulses prove potent. My flesh sculpted from the fruits of the tropics, blood from coconut water, skin colored by brown bark of Indian teak, my lungs fueled by Delhi's insidious toxic air, echo asthmatic sounds, a new vinyl dub remix. Our universe where radiation germinates from human follies, where contamination persists from mistrust, where pleasures of sex are merely a sport, where everything is ambition, everything is desire. Everything is nothing, nothing, and everything. White light everywhere, but no one can recognize its hue. No one knows that there is color in it, all possible colors. Body worshipped not for its blessings, but its contour, artificial shape shaped by Nautilus skin moistened by l'oreal and not by season's first rains skeleton strength shaped by earthquakes or slow molded by fearless forest fires ice caps are rapidly melting too fast to arrest glacial slide in the near future there will be no water left or too much water that is undrinkable excess water that will drown us all. Disembodied floats afloat like Noah's Ark. No GPS, no pole star navigation, 
no fossil fuel to burn away, just maps with empty grids and names of places that might exist. Already, there is too much traffic on the road. Unpeopled hollow metal shells without brakes swab about directionless, looking for an elusive compass. Thank you for that wonderful reading, Sudeep. And I think that thematically I want to read something from We of the Forsaken World. It's not a poem, but I think it also plays with kind of that feeling of loss. I am hungry, but only for the total meat of our clan. I've wandered many a moon to reach the land of the attached people, as I have traversed many falls and rise of the sun to return to ours. Do not be lonely. Do not talk to the spirits alone. I want nothing more than to see you. I want to eat from the berries together, as we do every half moon. I will be home soon. I was running again. I tapped my hands against the trees around me. The bark of the finger tree was coarse but soft, while the drum tree was battered but rough. Those bushes with thorns, those I did not touch. As by the tree trunk, the width of one man, the height of a hundred, the branches that flamed in all the directions at once, the type my family had lived in, far north of here. They are here, they are here. I thank the spirits that the trees are here. The land of the Tatchman is a land without trees. Or rather, the land I discovered was a land without trees. A land where the bodies of the red trees were nothing but stumps. Could have been the plotting of the great cats or the monkeys? Not at all. But why would they tear down the red trees? This is another thing about them that I do not know. So this is just a small little section of some story in the middle of the nomadic tribe that has, you know, the, 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 I'm sorry, the, the nameless tribe, the one that's in the middle of the jungle, and it's just one of the warriors reacting to the land after it's been cut down. So I think that um, it ties in a little bit with this kind of thing we're talking about, about how humans are connected to the land, and as we, as maybe more modern or contemporary human beings, tear it down for our own greed, we also kind of cause a lot of harm. Do you have another poem possibly to share, Sudeep? Yes, maybe a short poem. This one is called Hope. I think a hope is... And this is called Hope Light Leaves. And I wrote this poem at about three, three, three at night. You know, when I the, the room was dark, and um, the, the light from the bathroom was escaping to the edge of the door, and just the sort of sides of the door was creating this thin sliver of light and shape. But of course, it it, it talks about various other things. Hope, light leaks. Late at night, light leaks, spilling beyond the door's rectangle edge, a cleaving shift, its shape, a partial crucifix, a new resurrection. Light's plane waxes, wanes, viral load expands, contracts. Lives matter in this blackness. There shall be light after the darkness. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. 
Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon. I see.